Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, everyone. So good to see you. So good to see you. So good to worship with you, to sing, to allow the word to pour over us, and to be transformed by the working of the Holy Spirit in and among us. Good job, Kaylee. Um, so if this is your first time, welcome to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm the pastor here. We're beginning a new series today. Um, we're examining why exactly it is that Noah did not allow the dinosaurs onto the ark. Um, the beauty of being in the Science Center is we're going to... Okay, great. Now, that was a question I got asked two weeks ago. It was a good one. Um, I was telling uh, I was telling Nick and Maddie who were greeting today. We'd need to have a giant sign like on the you know the bridge that just says faith and an arrow pointing, and then science and another arrow pointing. <laughs> That'd be so funny. Oh, but seriously, um, today we are beginning a new series. So our our vision for the year overall is all our allegiance to King Jesus, and we've been. Um, examining this idea that faith is not this passive sense of trust that many of us have uh, inherited, which is, you know, you just kind of sit back, twiddle your thumbs until you die, and that's kind of what faith is. Like, maybe you get to go to heaven, you just kind of just try to be a good boy or a good girl in this time, and then that's about it. But rather saying, no, faith is our embodied allegiance to Jesus as our king, so we gather up behind him every part of who we are. Um, our, our mind, our heart, our body, our soul, all of this is gathered up in actively following him wherever it is that he might lead us. And so today we're beginning a series um, that probably the, uh, the idea came to me maybe like 10 years ago, so even before I was here um, in Orlando, and it's called Wandering Home. And what I want us to do in this series is uh, to, to follow the first disciples of King Jesus, um, these men and women who saw in him something that was worth following, um, and to follow their individual stories, to examine their personalities, their quirks, the times that they missed it, the times that they got it, that they're kind of bumping along on this journey back home toward God um, that's ultimately realized when they meet Jesus as the risen Christ, as the risen King. And my hope is that for it, what it does for us is it helps us to see that faith is not something that is static. It's not about getting it right all the time, but it's continually choosing to show up, to participate, and to see what God has in store for us. So today I'm going to be kind of painting a larger portrait of uh, what I hope for us to examine, and then next week we're going to begin to look at some of those principal players in the Jesus story. So I'm going to begin with two passages from the book of Genesis um, that I think so beautifully set us up to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about faith. Um, so the first is in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 5. So this is the first time that we're meeting Abram, who later becomes Abraham, okay? Um, and Abram is a guy, uh, just like any other guy, he had, you know, you can find his little family lineage in Genesis 11, kind of getting us up. He had a a uh, family member called Uz and his brother Buzz, which I think is great. That's in the Bible. Um, and so Abram's just a guy. He's just a guy. 
he's got some goats, he's got some family, he kind of lives in the desert, he's just a guy. And this is when we first meet him, this is God speaking to him. So it says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they'd accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So the, the revolutionary idea here, what, what, what God is doing is God is going to begin to form a family out of Abram, and in that family, he's going to preserve a bloodline, and in that bloodline, he's going to bring about the Messiah, who's going to rescue all peoples and bring them all back into relationship with him. And so that's the promise that we see him giving Abram. And so he comes to this guy, he's just a guy, he's 75, he's got a wife, who we find out later is really attractive, at 75 probably, so kudos to Abram for uh, you choosing wisely. I don't know. The Bible's really funny. Um, but the, it, what I want you to see here is the invitation from Yahweh. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, there's two revolutionary things about this in the time of Abram. Number one, it's the command to go. Because it was a time when people didn't go anywhere. Like, you were rooted. It was your father's household because it was his father's household and so on and so on and so on. People didn't go anywhere. It's kind of like Northern Ireland. Nobody went anywhere. The accent changes 10 minutes down the road because no one goes anywhere. How many of you are transplants? Like, you've moved. How many of you are, like, born and bred Orlandoans? Orlandinians? So a few. You know, it's like our culture, it's very normal for us, this idea that we just go into new places, uncharted territories. But in Abram's day, that was not common. You kind of lived, you were rooted where you were at. It was kind of an agricultural society. So it was about farming. It was about tending to the seasons. And you were rooted in your place. So there's a revolution here where the Lord is saying to this guy, you're going to go. Like you're going to move forward. All of a sudden, time isn't cyclical. It's linear. Because now you're moving somewhere. And secondly, it's where. He, Abram will go, well, where am I going to go? And many of you that know this, if God's asked you to go somewhere, you say, well, where is it? And he goes, well, I'll show you. And you're like, that's not helpful. I can't put that into my GPS. Where am I going? So not only is Abram to leave behind everything that he knows, but he will only know where he's going because he's listening to the voice of the Lord. So it is defined by where God shows him to go. Now, the second story is in Genesis 28. This is two generations later. So uh, Abram, uh, who becomes Abraham, uh, has uh, Isaac, and then Isaac begets Jacob. And so this is a little bit of Jacob's story as he's trying to figure out who he is. Um, and I love that Jacob's name means heel grabber. Um, there's this kind of idea that like he's, he's very crafty. He kind of you know, he steals his inheritance from his brother Esau, and he's a little bit of an outcast. He's trying to figure out who he is. And so in this point of the story, he's kind of wandering uh, through the wilderness, trying to find his place, trying to avoid his brother, trying to figure out who he is. And it says this in Genesis 28, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. 
Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and laid down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abram and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I love this story. I love this moment um, because I think it's an antidote to so often what we think of when we think of like God's realm. You know, many of us have been brought up in kind of a Western philosophical tradition where it says like there's the material reality and it's kind of temporary and it's corrupt and uh, God's going to burn up the whole world and just toss it into the waste bin. And then there's the spiritual worm and that's what God really cares about. Now, what that usually comes down to, what you've heard, is like, well, at the end of the day, God just wants your heart. Or God's here just to save your soul with the expense of all the material reality. But what this story's telling us is, no, 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 the reality of God is pregnant and waiting to be revealed in this moment, in this place. So it's not about God's realm being somewhere else, and we're going to go somewhere else when we die. But it's actually seeing the manifestation of God in the present moment. God is waiting to be revealed where he already is, but we're the ones that didn't realize it. So how much of faith is actually us waking up to the reality of what we didn't realize when we were asleep? And that's the difference. So what is faith like? Is faith like setting off into a foreign land on, a, on the horizon, trusting that it's going to become home? Is faith waking up to realize the place that we're at is already holy ground, but it was something within us that prevented us from seeing it, that this is the house of God? I think the answer is yes. It's both of these things and more. But whatever it is, the imagery that we have for faith is never, ever static. Faith is never, ever static. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll kind of we'll really jump into this. This was just the preamble. You're welcome. Uh, so, Heavenly Father, we do testify like Jacob to say, surely you're in this place, and we were the ones that weren't aware of it. But, Lord, we've all come into this place with our um, you know, possible anxieties and excitement about the future, or um, our enjoyment, or despair, or frustration with the past. Whatever it is, Lord, we come in here, and there's so many things that prevent us from seeing that you are already here that this is the house of the Lord. This is the gate of heaven. And so, Holy Spirit, would you alight upon your dear ones right now that we might have our eyes opened to recognize your presence here, that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you want to guide us into the next place by your voice, your calling. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, a rock and a redeemer. Amen. So this is kind of how I want to frame 
this idea of faith for this next series, that faith is a constant cycle of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And we're going to have three moments as I'm talking through these three elements. We're going to have three moments of meditation. So I encourage you, go ahead and get out your phone, start up a note, write this stuff down. It's solid gold. It's free. Okay, you don't even have to pay for this stuff. Um, But you're going to have these moments to really reflect and allow it to touch your own story. So I think for many, as I said, faith is some sort of static ideal that we've achieved. Uh, Once we have all of our doctrines in place and once we have all of our spiritual practices in place, then somehow we have achieved faith. And I've even heard it sometimes in charismatic circles. We talk about like leveling up as if we're playing Mario. It's like you eat the mushroom and now it's like, wow, I even have stronger faith than I did before. And there's, there's a lot of unhealthy attitudes towards faith. I almost imagine it like you have a giant shelf in your room and it's like once you get all your books in the right place and all of your tchotchkes in the right place, like now I've got faith because it's all intact and it's perfect. But the problem is every day those shelves keep rearranging. And so you're constantly frustrated because you're like, why can't I just get it all to stick? Like once I get it figured out, hopefully by 25, then I don't have to touch it anymore and I don't have to deal with the constant questions and, and the disorientation and whatnot. And we're constantly fighting against something that we think is anathema to our faith, but it is actually integral in this idea of disorientation. How many of you are familiar with this phenomenon called deconstruction? That's happening right now. Oh, okay, see, yeah, okay. Some of you are also on the internet. Um, so uh, the philosopher Jacques Derrida developed this idea in the last century of deconstruction, which is essentially where we break down ideas to their fundamental elements and we examine the relationship between those things. So we're looking at the definition of words. Uh, what do we really say when we mean this? That's what deconstruction actually is, and there's a lot more to it. Um, but what we're finding now is I think that there's a massive wave of, I would say, capital D disappointment in organized religion. And you guys know what one of my big revelations of, through the pandemic is that disappointment is an emotion that we do not give enough weight to because I think it's actually huge. Um, we, we tend to kind of dismiss disappointment for what we would say are like bigger emotions, but I think it's actually a very big emotion. And I think there's a lot in my generation and younger Maybe you Gen Xers, too. I don't know. You guys never seem to really care about anything anyway, so um, just kidding. We're just going there. We're just going to call them out. See, this is free, Kaylee. People don't get this everywhere. But we're in this era where the, the language has come forth of deconstruction, which I think is integrally tied to disappointment in organized religion because the world has changed a lot faster than the church has been able to be aware of. And unfortunately, many churches are still thinking, well, if we just buckle down and keep doing things the way that we've been doing, everybody else will recognize that they're wrong or they're stupid or whatever it is, and they'll just come back, and we can just keep running the programs. And they're not being sensitive to what's actually happening and listening to the hearts of people um, that are actually in this tremendous amount of struggle because there's been so much has shifted for us culturally. But one of the interesting phenomenons that we find is that we oftentimes become disillusioned with uh, the status quo, with the way that we've learned how to do things, but the way in which we've been taught how to hold belief and practice, we just kind of transfer that into a new box, right? And so we just do the, do, we believe different things, but we believe them in the same way. And so for a lot of us, if we grew up in a very like programmatic Christianity, 
or someone being prescriptive and telling you this is what you're supposed to do, we kind of move that into like, okay, now I'm supposed to do this. So um, my uh, pastoral coach, Justin McRoberts, every once in a while online, he'll do these kind of ask me anything uh, things on, on Instagram. And one of the things that he frequently, I see him getting asked is, what do I need to do in order to deconstruct? Or what books should I be reading to deconstruct? It's now become a program. You know, we've already done that. It's like, oh, this is a necessary part of my faith that I'm in this place and I must be an idiot because I still believe what I believed when I was 12. And so I feel shame because I'm not going through what everybody else is going through. So I've got to do what I need to do in order to belong. Never underestimate the human need to belong, right? You will abdicate all critical thinking. You will rewrite your story in order to belong to whatever's happening within the culture around you. It's a very human thing. It's a very human desire. And I love that Justin's continual, very kind, very pastoral response to people is, maybe you're not deconstructing. Maybe you're just growing. Maybe you're just learning. Maybe you're just unlearning. And maybe that's what we've actually been doing the whole time. You see, sometimes we look for this almost mechanical process that's supposed to save us and we're not sensitive to what's actually happening in us to say, oh, this is actually a normal and integral part of the journey of faith. And so the Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, specifically in his work with the Psalms, he kind of groups them in these three words, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. But I think it actually applies to so many of the journeys of faith that we see within Scripture and so many of our own journeys. So I want to walk through each of those. So firstly, orientation. Orientation happens when we are building our understanding of God, the world, and ourselves. When you are being oriented to reality. You are, you are born, your senses are starting to develop over time, and you're working it out like, okay, who am I? And what is this world like? And ultimately, that deeper question of what is God like? Now, this is the place where your ego largely guides your development. When a lot of times we give the ego uh, a really bad rap, um, but your ego is good and necessary in the beginning of life uh, because you're building your worldview. And this is going to speak to your culture, um, it's going to speak to your, your heritage, uh, your family of origin. All of these things are you constructing a sense of who you are and your place within the world. And that is good and it's necessary, but it only will serve you to a certain point. Like my Enneagram guru, Suzanne Stabile, says, what got you here won't get you there. There comes a point where this, the way in which you're building your understanding of the world and God and yourself, it starts to not really work anymore. And that's a lot of times where our, our egos take over and we continue to fight and insist, no, 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 we've got it right. Like we have the, the certain way that the, everything's supposed to work and we kind of bulldoze over um, the, the competing narratives that we're bumping into or the sense of disappointment or whatever it, it might be. And one of the things that I, that I have found especially helpful is how do we bless our, our original orientation to the world? So um, I do a lot of work with, with some of you in this in counseling, especially in premarital counseling. We, when we talk about families of origin, when we talk about what your impression was of like what a, like in marriage, for example, like uh, Martin and Jennifer and I have been talking through this a lot because uh, I get married in November. <laughs> Exciting. Um, but to be able to look back to your family of origin and say, what are the things that I would bless in my parents? The, the, the impression that they gave me that I want to carry into my marriage. And what are the things, if I'm honest, I wanted to kind of end here 
and in the next generation we do something a little bit different. This isn't, that's just an example of what I'm talking about. How do we bless what it deserves to be blessed from our heritage, from our culture, from that time of being oriented to the world that actually set us up well to grow, to understand what God is like, to understand uh, the world, to understand ourselves, to understand uh, our journey of faith. And Richard Rohr calls this including and transcending. Especially with your faith journey, it's not that you leave behind what you were and then you become something else because it'll always be part of you. So for me, I grew up in the Anglican church. My dad is an Anglican pastor. That was, that's my, her, my spiritual heritage. And rather than leaving that behind and then entering into the Vineyard Church, which I did when I moved to Nashville in 2007, um, I, I brought along part of my Anglicanism. And on, it was added into that was this kind of charismatic renewal vineyard thing. And then bringing those here, it's like I'm collecting these pieces and you bless what is good and you kind of let go of the things that maybe don't serve you anymore. But you never leave one thing behind and enter into a different thing because it's part of you on an, like a, a kind of a, a visceral level. And so we include and we transcend our, our families of origin, our spiritual households of origin, whatever it might be. So the first meditation that I want to invite you to is just to take stock really quick of when you were oriented to the world. How did I build my understanding of God, the world, and myself? What was your inheritance? Where did you get all that from? And what am I most thankful for in my spiritual heritage? Not the things that you want to rebel against and you want to chuck out the window. I mean, I'm sure that list is long and it's very easy to compose. What are you thankful for from your spiritual heritage? Let's just take two minutes and I want you to meditate on that. I realized we had a couple moments of uh, group discussion the past couple Sundays, so I wanted to balance it out for our introverts so that you guys have some time to uh, uh, just kind of sit before the Lord. So 
it's, it's really important that we're doing the work of, it's like you almost have to go back in, able, in order to go forward. Because if you don't have a good and honest reading of your past, it kind of clouds your ability to recognize where you're at in the present moment. And I think that's the work that's really important like with, with therapy, uh, with spiritual direction, is somebody else to help you to read your own story. Not just to point your finger at all the things that went wrong and everything that disappointed you, but also to be able to bless what was good and what was true, and that's given me a foundation for standing where I am to now. You know, I think that's what's so tricky and the nuance that we need in reading our past is to say, how do I honor what actually has like formed me while at the same time being able to be honest at, yes, the disappointments and yes, the, the things that no longer serve me. And if you can do that work well, it sets you better up for this next stage, which is disorientation. So we experience disorientation when some of the definitions of the past don't seem to meet the questions of the present. Have you had that moment where you grew up, you learned, you know, I'm speaking specifically to people that grew up in church. I know that's not everybody's story, but you, you grew up and you learned all the stories um, and it never occurred to you that half of them are like super violent and they're horrible people, and you're like, oh, Bible heroes, and I'm going to dress up like my favorite Bible hero, and you're like, that guy was a rapist, and you're like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, you grow up, and you're like, wait, what? What's happening? You know? Um, but, like, were some of these ideas that we've grown up on how the world works, um, or what is, who's in and who's out, or these definitions of God, or whatever it might be, they just all of a sudden, you're bumping into these things. Maybe it's like something that's happening in kind of the news or something that's happening in a, you know, an era of crisis like we are with this pandemic and with a lot of um, you know, the racial justice stuff that's hit, hit us over the past year or a lot of the, the political vitriol that's hit us over the past several years. Um, and you don't have the tools. Like, it doesn't make sense anymore. Or you're wondering, like, I don't know, is there a better way? Like, do I need to question this? Like, and I'm, believe me, I'm not playing politics here, but I know I, I had a friend who went through this, and he said, I grew up believing if you're a Christian, of course you vote Republican. Why wouldn't you vote Republican? And then he realized one day, I don't have to vote Republican. Or I talked to somebody this week that realized, I don't have to vote at all. And they grew up like, that's a huge insult. Why wouldn't you do that? That's your simple duty. And it wasn't in the sense of like avoiding voting, but actually having what is, the, what is a God-given spiritual reason why I would not participate in the system. And there's a lot of things like that, right? Like where we all of a sudden were like, oh my God, I've, I've grown up with this assumption. And now this assumption's being challenged and I don't, I don't really know what to do with that or where to go. And a lot of times for us, that's where the definitions we have of what faith is supposed to be begin to fall apart because we encounter something called doubt. We begin to question things. But we've been taught doubt is the opposite of faith. Doubt is a sin. And if you ask questions, you're sinning. There's so many people over the past eight years of being here where I've, I've sat with them and I've, I've heard their stories of growing up in church and like literally somebody told me that their pastor came to their parents, they were 12, and said, uh, you know, little Sally is asking too many questions in youth groups, so we're going to ask that she doesn't come anymore. 
Like, that's real. Because we don't question the system. Why? No, no, no. We run the program. And if you just squinch your eyes and clench your fists hard enough and go, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, then you're going to get through this life alive. But what if, what if the times of doubt and disorientation in our lives can point us even more into the arms of a loving God? Several weeks ago, I talked about Teresa of Avila, who was this amazing Spanish mystic. She was a Carmelite nun. She, had, she wrote amazing things about this kind of mystical union with God. And, and one of her disciples, his name was John of the Cross. This is 16th century Spain. So another example of like a strong, powerful woman who's raising up really awesome men. That's for free. And John of the Cross wrote um, a, a book about kind of like this huge poem that he had written about this whole idea called The Dark Night of the Soul. How many of you are familiar with the idea of a dark night of the soul? So John of the Cross posits this is actually a very normal and actually an integral part of the journey of faith to go through a dark night of the soul. And essentially what it means is you no longer feel the presence of God. And therefore you begin to question things are true, if the, and your, maybe your practices break down, like you're praying, but it doesn't really feel like it's doing anything. You enter into scripture and it just feels, you feel dry. And what he says is that, that those times of the dark night of the soul, for some people it might be a very significant period, for others of us it might be like almost like little micro dark nights of the soul. Something is being purged from us so that we can have union with God. And for many of us it's our, uh, our need for a sensory connection with God, when we need to feel something. And I actually think this is part of how faith works, is like when you first really come to the Lord or you really choose in, or you're, like you just, it just comes, you can't help it, like you're running to church and you're like just constantly in like worship and you just, you feel this elation and then it begins to disappear and you wonder, well, what happened? Why don't I have the faith that I had before? But I think it's actually an invitation to a deeper, more mature sense of faith where it's not dependent upon your senses. It's not dependent upon your feelings. And if we can kind of persevere through those dark nights of the soul, we actually find that we're being purged of this very surfacey need to feel feelings in order to enter into something far deeper and more durable. But I think the two questions here, because this would be kind of the, I think this kind of helps read well this era of deconstruction, is that we are feeling like, oh my gosh, these things aren't working, therefore I don't have faith, therefore I'm going to exit uh, the Christianity, or I'm going to give up on God, or whatever it might be. And I think one of the most unfortunate things that I hear, and I don't blame people for saying this, I think it's actually a diagnosis of the problem with the church, is people say, I'm having all these questions, so I need to leave the church in order to go and figure it out on my own, right? How many of you, you have friends like that, or maybe that's been your journey, or whatever it is? And what does that tell me? It tells me that people, their inheritance from the church is, I'm starting to have questions, and doubts, and struggle. And the church is not a place where I'm allowed to have questions, and doubts, and struggle. So I need to go away, and I need to go and do it by myself, as if any of us have the tools to do it by ourselves. I don't even know what that means. I don't know how to, you know, like that. I said this last week, like I, I stand, I will stake my claim on this, Christianity is only something you can do in community. It's not, you can't make it just you and Jesus. Because Jesus loves the church. Jesus, God rescues us into a family. And we don't get to choose just which part of the good news of Jesus that we want to accept. 
because so much of the work that the Spirit of Jesus is doing within us is because of the people that are in this room together. And so my question is always in this time to try to like give a maybe trajectory for people who are struggling is to say, who are you doing it with? Who are you struggling with? Who are you doubting alongside of? Because I want us to be a community that isn't afraid of the times that each of us have doubt or struggle or questions. That we're going to show up for one another when we're doing that. We're going to worship on each other's behalf. We're going to believe on each other's behalf. And we're going to hold each other up because the, our connection to one another is not contingent upon whether or not we agree on everything all the time. And we need to kind of like sap out the shame that comes from the dark night of the soul to go, well, maybe this is actually a very normal part of our journey of faith. So number two, what, who are we doing it with? And I would also say, if you find yourself in a circle where everybody's going through the same thing, and you're all, you're all in agreement about how toxic this, that, and the other thing is, you're probably also in the wrong place. Because it's just going to feed that. You know, it's so easy for, for doubt and fear to turn into bitterness and vitriol. And then we're not reading our stories well. We're not able to enter into other ways of seeing things. That's, that's why we need diversity within the community. So that something can hold us up but offer us differing perspectives. And the second thing I think is, do we have the practices at hand to keep showing up when we're in that dark night of the soul? Does our spiritual inheritance and our practice extend beyond singing some songs and listening to a guy talk about the Bible for 40 minutes or an hour, depending on how much I get going? Do we have those prayers? I love uh, Brian Zahn says, when you don't know what to pray, say your prayers. Because he has discovered the value of like these prayers that we can come back to time and again. And there's a lot of times, you know, like I, I love, uh, I love liturgy. It's part of my inheritance growing up. And I kind of try every morning to pray uh, prayers that come out of various communities. And there's a lot of times when I'm praying these prayers and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know about that. Or I'm not feeling that. Someone asked me uh, a couple days ago about praying the Psalms. Like, what does that look like? And there's a lot of times where I'm praying the Psalms and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. You know what I mean? But it's actually part of it. You know, this, this past week, we, um, we meditated in a Friday morning prayer group, which you guys can sign up for. It's on Zoom. Uh, and we were meditating on uh, Psalm 77. And I, I really, this is, a, this is a psalm from uh, Asaph, who wrote a pretty significant amount of the psalms. And it's so wonderful because it, it shows this idea that, like, this was actually, the, the questions and the doubt is part and parcel of faith for the Jewish people. So it says this, he says, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. How many of you are just like, you remember God, and you're like, ugh, you know? I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. How many of you meditate, and you're like, ugh, you know? You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remember my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Like That's part of it. And sometimes there's times where we read that and we're like, amen, I feel that. Yeah. And we pray out those things. And so we all need these practices that can kind of keep us present in the moment, working through that dark night of the soul in the context of community until we come out the other side. 
And you even have permission to believe that, like Asaph here, maybe you won't come out the other side. But you're going to keep showing up to see what happens. It's not for a lack of participation in showing up. So I want to give you another two minutes. I'm going to answer this question of disorientation. What are some areas of my faith where I feel like the definitions of the past don't seem to cut it anymore? Now, that may be a theological doctrine. It may be a practice. There's a lot of different things this could be, but I just want to kind of leave it open to you. What are some areas of my faith where I feel like the definitions of the past don't seem to cut it anymore? Take two minutes. I wonder even as you write those things down, do you have <clears throat> that impulse to explain it away, to answer it quickly or whatever? It's like we, it's so natural for us because we want to be confident. We want to be confident in our faith. We want to know stuff because knowledge makes us feel safe. But I think it's a really brave thing to be able to just sit and to just to let the questions be questions. And that's one of the things we notice in the Psalms is a lot of the Psalms don't resolve. You know, two-thirds of the Psalms are lament. And many of those, they don't have an answer. They're just questions. But that is, that's the hymnal for Judaism. That's their songs. Like, that was part of their worship practice. And I think the more that we are forgiving and gracious to ourselves to let questions be questions and to let things sit and to recognize, well, maybe the answers won't come so easily. You know, maybe, maybe I need to sit with this one a little bit longer. Maybe this isn't the thing that I really need to be focusing on right now. That's what I find with a lot of folks when I talk to them about the questions that they're having and the struggles they're having in their faith. And it's, you know, some very, very particular piece of theology. Maybe it's like, like doctrine of heaven and hell or whatever. And I'm like, what if maybe you just don't deal with that one right now? Because like I, I got an email from somebody this week and kind of, they're working through a lot of things. They grew up in a very kind of fundamentalist environment. Um, and they're kind of questioning a lot of 
their inheritance, their ideas of God and theology and this, that, and the other. But I heard so much emotional context in what they were going through. I said, well, maybe, maybe we really need to work through this, the fear that you have of even doing the work. Maybe we don't need to talk about heaven and hell or we don't, you don't, don't need to talk about sexuality or we don't need to talk about you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, dispensationalist, whatevers. You know? like maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe we need to talk about why you're so afraid to just sit in the confusion. You know, my favorite verse in the Old Testament is Exodus 20, 21. And you have to do it in the KJV because it's the best. It says, and the people stood afar off and Moses entered into the thick darkness where God was. And the people stood afar off and Moses entered into the thick darkness where God was. You see, the Jewish people, the Israelites, they were so afraid of whatever was up there because they couldn't see it. It was... It's too confusing. And in fact, when Moses does go up there, what do they do? They're like, we'll take that idea of God, the messy, big, scary one on the mountain that's in a cloud, and we'll bring him off the cloud, and we'll literally gather together all of our valuables, and we'll melt them down, and we'll mix it all together, and we'll make a God that we can manage, and we'll put him on a pedestal and go like, this God is so much easier to understand. You see, that was the, that was the, the sin of Israel with the golden calf. It wasn't that it was a different God. It's far more nefarious. It was the God on top of the mountain just mixed with their junk, made more understandable and manageable to say, well, we can worship this God because we can see him and touch him and he has a shape. But it was brave of Moses to enter into the thick darkness, to kind of give up this place of knowing and codifying what God is supposed to be just to show up in the thick darkness and to see what happens. So the third and final stage is reorientation. We reorient when we're able to commit to coming home to truth. I think a lot of times what I hear in this era of deconstruction, of disorientation, not only is it that the church has failed people in understanding what faith actually is, um, but is also failing to give good guides that can help people to walk through the dark night of the soul, to walk through the doubt and the confusion. Because we think that faith is a certainty machine, so we just keep peddling answers, like quick little, just throwing out little answers that would just you know, all of a sudden solve things for people. And I don't think that that's necessarily what we need. But what we do need is a compass or a north star that gives us a sense of direction. We see this in the Psalms, like even that Psalm of Asaph. He's still directing all of his doubt and confusion and disorientation to God. Now, he's questioning the character of God. He doesn't even trust that maybe this God is showing up for him, but it's still in that direction. I love, uh, it's in Jeremiah 20, I think. He writes this poem and he goes, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. I love that. It's just like a big old middle finger to the Almighty. Like, what is happening? Like, this isn't, this wasn't the plan. This isn't cool. Um, but there's still a direction to it. Moses enters into the thick darkness because he knows God's there. Abraham enters into the foreign land because he knows there's going to be a voice that's going to tell him when he arrives. We need a compass to our disorientation or else we just get stuck in it. And I think, unfortunately, because so many people have a poor inheritance of what faith actually is, they deconstruct and then they never reconstruct because it's easier just to avoid having to deal with the hard questions. Who is God? What is the world like? Who am I really? It's easier just to disengage and to stay there. 
and it's tragic. I don't say this with any sense of joy, but so many of the people that I know that have entered into this deconstruction phase and they've left the church or they've left Christianity, they're not any happier or whole or have any more answers after five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it might be. Because they did that thing where they left community, they went to go and do it on their own, and then they didn't actually have the tools when they got there either to really start to reorient to what, what am I seeking? Like, even if I can't call it God, am I still seeking truth? And I love this Im- image when we talk about deconstruction of restoration. You know, restoration, we've talked about this a few times. Like, um, you know, you have a, a, a beautiful painting, um, you know, of Jesus, but over the centuries, it's like the muck and the grime and the dust have kind of covered it over. And these uh, restorers come in and they gently scrape away all the stuff, all the centuries of gunk to reveal the beautiful image of Jesus that was always there. We couldn't always see it. And is that not the place where we're at now as Christianity begins to enter into its third millennia? Is we've got centuries of muck and gunk that have covered over the beautiful face of Jesus And our task is that we need to start scraping away some of that stuff because it was never actually meant to be there. And this is why I think that why we believe something is as important as what we believe. Because disappointment left unattended becomes bitterness. And bitterness is a faith killer. Bitterness is a meaning killer. We stop asking questions of meaning when we just sit entrenched in that stuff without having any way of moving forward. But I think if we're committed to truth, or or someone even asked me recently, said, I love Jesus. I love Jesus, but I'm so afraid to examine some of these these things that I grew up with were just assumptions, but now they don't seem to be serving me anymore. They don't even really seem to be true. And I said, well, that's, that's the thing. Like, you still love Jesus. I'm not worried about you. I'm not worried about what gets brought up in this season, what um, ideas and beliefs or practices that you maybe need to let go of. If, you, if your honest desire is to know Jesus, I'm not worried because I actually have a very high opinion of him and I think he will do what he's going to do in your life. You know, one of the biggest shifts for me over the years, and it wasn't something that I think I was inherently taught, especially because my dad's here and he was my pastor growing up, but I had this idea for a while that I thought was like really exciting, like Jesus is in heaven and he kind of forsakes his divinity to become a man and then he does all these things and then he kind of like earns back his divinity, right? Because God is divine, can't possibly be down here. We've got cooties. He's get, he'd be mixed up in our stuff. How many of you like God is holy and God looks at you and he's like, ugh, no, sorry, I can't be close to you, right? Like a lot of us grew up with this idea of the holiness of God. He's like, he's so, he's up in heaven and he's perfect. And we get into his space and we're all gross and we've got sin cooties and he can't possibly be close to us. Therefore, so Jesus to be close to us, it's like Jesus has to get rid of his divinity somehow to enter into our mess. But then I realized, meditating on like Philippians 2 and others, Jesus coming as a man, submitting himself to his own creation, becoming less than a man and and willing to suffer and die on our behalf is the evidence of his divinity because God is not perfect in the sense that like he's without spot and blemish and he's up on top of a mountain he's untouchable God is love and love is sacrificial and there's no greater image of God than Jesus on the cross like that's 
when we talk about God, that's our kind of ground zero for understanding what God is like. So there was this journey for me of recognizing, you know, like, okay, Jesus forsakes his divinity. He walks away from heaven. Uh, the father walks away from him. Like, at the least, God is a neglectful dad, if not an abusive dad, right? Like, the father is neglectful because he just walks away from his son. He's like, I can't handle this. I can't deal with all your sin cooties. Or he's abusive and he actually wants to beat Jesus up on our behalf. To going, no, that's, that's actually the evidence of the love of God. Like, that's the evidence of Jesus' divinity, is that he was capable of absorbing all of our sin, of dying, of putting it to death in the grave, and then being raised on the third day. And so when I started to make this transition, I go, oh, wait, this is, like, actually good news. <laughs> How about that? Like, the, the message of the cross, and, like, God so loved the world, not God was so fed up with the world that he figured somebody needed to get beat up in order for him to, like, justify forgiving us. That God so loved the world, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God destroyed God's self in order to, to bring us back into relationship. Like, now it starts to sound like good news. And I think that truth, in order to be truth, must be beautiful. Not that it makes us feel good. That's a lesser form of truth, but truth must be beautiful. And I think the reorientation that we need, the reconstruction is marked by surprise and delight at the newness of what we discover about God, about ourselves, about the world around us. Does your reorientation, does your commitment to pursue truth, are you seeing beauty in it? The theologian Karl Rahner says, all good theology must bring us to awe. Like, is your understanding of God and yourself and the world, like, is it so, like, neatly packaged that it's just not interesting anymore? Or do you encounter the story of Jesus and your response is awe, surprise, and delight, newness, resurrection, new life? That's when you know that you're on the path. So the final meditation. What is one aspect of my faith that has become more beautiful because I was willing to hold it to the light of the risen Christ? It might be a belief, it might be a practice, whatever it is. What is one aspect of my faith that has become more beautiful because I was willing to hold it to the light of the risen Christ?
And so bringing it back around to what I want us to explore in this series, that we can look to the first followers of Jesus to see what the meandering journey of allegiance looks like. What does it look like for us to come home? And one of the things I'm so excited about and recognizing, and this was just, again, another shift for me in, in reading the Bible, is to realize, oh my gosh, all these people are a mess. Like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that whole family, that's like e-entertainment, reality show nonsense. People are like, Abraham's literally like right after this story, he's like, hey, you know what we should do, Sarah? Let's pretend you're my sister so they don't like rape you. Sorry, kids. You know, like, what? But we look at the first followers of Jesus and they messed up. They got it wrong all the time. The experience, like, my gosh, I'm doing... Peter next week, like talk about a dark night of the soul, like he sold Jesus out. Talk about Paul being knocked off a horse and blinded and not knowing right from wrong, up from down. Like he, they experienced faith. They experienced doubt and confusion. They experienced darkness. And most of them didn't get it until they encountered the risen Jesus. Most of them didn't understand what he was saying or what he was doing until it was after the resurrection. It was just a question of whether or not they held on long enough to be able to meet him. And we'll even look at Judas was the one that that couldn't hold on long enough. So we're going to be following the journeys of these first disciples to see how they wandered home to him. Looking at their personalities, looking at their points of origin, but like looking at how was it that the spirit of Jesus met them in the darkness, in the confusion, in the disappointment, and guided them day by day, month by month, year by year, until they were prepared to encounter him. So I want to invite you to to stand with me, and we're going to worship. So, Father, we, we've, we've all entered into this space at different stages in our journey of faith. Some of us are in that, that place where we're just bursting with revelations of who you are. And we feel so confident in that, Lord. And I bless that. We should not feel ashamed for the confidence that we feel in who you are and who you've created us to be. But, Lord, some of us come in and we have a lot of questions and some of the definitions of the past don't seem to be working anymore and still you say come and some of us Lord we're 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 reorienting we're moving forward we're letting go learning that practice of letting go of the things that don't seem to work or to hold to hold truth and we're taking up new things new ideas new practices new relationship with I bless that. Lord, I love that every stage of our faith, you still bid us to come. So Father, as we enter back into worship, I pray that you would move in us and through us, that you begin to speak to each one of us about where we're at, and that you would give us that sense of grace, that it's okay to be where we are, that our faith is not static, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, When we enter into the thick darkness, you are there. The promises that you've made to be with us are true. Yeah. 
thank you for this time. We thank you for this season that we're in as a church community. We bless you in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church Podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.